Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 332nd edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you today by AHEMA. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated. Good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and hello, everybody. This morning, our lead story asks a very simple question. Are HIM coding professionals qualified to query for clinical validation? I will be happy to give you my opinion at the top of my talk back. (laughs) We look forward to that indeed. Also, uh, reporting this controversial topic is going to be Deborah Beitzel Denton. She's an AHEMA approved ICD 10 CMPCS trainer. And also on the broadcast is former CMS career professional Stanley Nockamson with his popular Reg Watch segment. <laughs> indeed, looking forward to hearing from Stanley. He always has something very important to report. Yeah, CMS just released the 2019 proposed Medicare physician fee schedule last. Thursday. Reporting on the proposed changes will be Shannon DeConda. And later in the broadcast, you're going to return with your popular talkback segment. We have much to report on this broadcast, and we begin this morning with Dennis Jones. He's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to visit the new ICD 10 Monitor webcast subscription portal. See the link in the handout tab in today's program or visit the ICD University web store. Here now is Dennis Jones. Good morning, Mr. Buck. Hey, an interesting development in the use of medical marijuana was reported last week by a number of major news services. And by major news services, I'm referring to the Marijuana Herald, the DailyChronic.com, and Fox News. I was re- it was reported on July 12th that the New York State Department of Health has filed emergency regulations adding any condition for which an opioid could be prescribed as a qualifying condition for the use of medical marijuana. Now, this is a major development because of the change in traditional thinking of the sanctioned drugs, which are assumed to be good for you, and illegal drugs, which are presumably bad for you. As far as the federal government is concerned, marijuana is still an illegal Schedule I drug. This decision by the New York Department of Health has been made because of the avalanche of proof that prescription opioids can, be, can do more harm than good. While mounting evidence supports the fact that marijuana is effective as a pain reliever and is non-addictive. According to the CDC, opioid overdoses resulted in the deaths of over 40,000 people in the U.S. in 2016. These deaths were mostly heroin overdoses, but it has been proven that prescription opioids truly are a gateway drug to heroin in many cases. The CDC estimates the cost of treating prescription opioid overdoses, ICD-10 code T40.2, prescription opioid abuse, ICD-10 code F11.1, and prescription opioid dependence, ICD-10 code F11.2, is over a trillion dollars since 2001 when you include the cost of lost earnings, health care costs, treatment costs, and law enforcement costs. So now in New York, effective last week, patients may be certified to use medical marijuana as a, soap, as a substitute for opioids for treatment of the conditions for which the opioids were originally prescribed. 
This will allow patients with severe pain, say from a total knee replacement, that did not meet the previous definition of chronic pain to use medical marijuana as a replacement for opioids. In addition, patients with opioid use disorder, ICD-10 code F11.1 and F11.2, who are enrolled in treatment programs may now use medical marijuana just as an opioid replacement. The New York State Health Commissioner, Dr. Howard Zucker, states medical marijuana has been shown to be an effective treatment for pain that also reduces the chance of opioid dependence. These emergency regulations went into effect on a temporary basis on July 12th, that was last Thursday, with the permanent regulation expected to be published in the New York State Register on August 1st, 2018. Similar regulations are advancing in other states, including Illinois. In another story, perhaps unrelated, I saw that the EHR giant Epic has announced another big acquisition. Last week, Epic revealed that it has acquired Wisconsin's second most famous outdoor carousel from the historic Ella's Deli and Ice Cream Parlor in Madison, Wisconsin. The co-owner of the restaurant stated that Epic Systems has purchased the carousel and the art collection, and they're going to carry it forward into their campus in a real positive way. Later this month, Epic intends to move the 90-year-old carousel and 250 whimsical, I say scary, pieces of art to its Verona, Wisconsin location. The electronic health record giant plans to reassemble the carousel and keep it in working order on the Epic campus. In light of this news, I researched Wisconsin's marijuana laws. It turns out Wisconsin has some of the most restrictive marijuana laws in the country. But I suspect that buying a historic operational merry-go-round and installing it on the grounds of a technology company with 9,400 employees located deep in the country's snow belt sounded like a great idea after a, uh, a few spotted cow farmhouse ales on a long, late Friday happy hour. Chuck, that's it from the news desk. <laughs> Thanks, Dennis, very much. That was Dennis Jones. Dennis is the Administrator of Patient Financial Services at Nyack Hospital in Nyack, New York. It's Tuesday, it's July 17, 2018, and you're listening to the 332nd edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you today by AHIMA, the American Health Information Management Association. Have you heard? It's happening again. The 2019 ICD-10 code updates are here. AHIMA has more than 20 coding experts currently working to review all code updates in their entirety. And they are creating webinar training to ensure you and your staff are prepared for success. In-depth, on-demand training webinars are available for ICD-10-CM, ICD-10-PCS, and specialties, including inpatient physical rehab, long-term care, physicians, clinical documentation improvement, and auditors. Purchase as an individual or for your entire organization at ahima.org slash code updates. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Some major changes are being proposed in the 2019 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule. In fact, CMS proposes to change physician evaluation and management coding, E&M coding, with some drastic overhaul. Reporting this developing story is nationally recognized E&M Coding Authority, Shannon DeConnick. Good morning, Shannon. Welcome to the broadcast. Good morning, Chuck, and thank you for having me on the broadcast. I want to start this segment by reminding listeners that at current, this is all proposed changes, and we don't have all of the details yet, so in today's segment, I only have time to give you a high-level overview of the proposed changes, 
but enough for you to gain insight of what may be coming around the corner. There's a proposed change, most importantly, to the E&M reimbursement model, and currently that would only impact office and outpatient services. The proposal would create a new single blended payment regardless of what E&M level you perform, you documented, or you select. CMS does indicate they would create an add-on code for additional work, so essentially they're going to slice and dice reimbursement for E&M. Additionally, they are proposing relaxing documentation requirements, but I'm not sure why we need that if their reimbursement model now goes to a flat fee for levels two through five. We, will we really still need to score documentation? Which leads to a whole other conversation that we just simply don't have time for in this segment, and that is the suggested payment model would then treat a complex patient worthy of a level five with the same reimbursement as those for strep throat. Isn't that why they instituted medical necessity as the overarching criterion above and beyond documentation content to prevent that type of thing? But this proposed model would put us right into that very spot. Within the CMS proposed rule, they include a RVU impact report, although only considering work and practice expense RVUs. If the RUP valued these the way that CMS is proposed, your high-level E&M codes would be cut reimbursement $60 to $70 per encounter. But let's turn our focus for a minute to the proposed documentation changes and keep in mind less documentation equals less work, less work equals less reimbursement. The proposal does allow that physicians could continue to use the same E&M framework that they've always used, but it also does allow that um, MDM could trump 95 and 97 documentation guidelines. Therefore, it wouldn't matter how much HPI, review of systems, or exam elements that you have. There's also a proposal that time could be used regardless of whether counseling and coordination of care dominate. But in order to use time, they have proposed time parameters for a new patient of 38 minutes and an established patient of 31 minutes. But get this, as long as you meet half, they would be willing to consider that. While we just let mentioned that CMS is now proposing uh, that you can determine your level by MDM or time, they also have a modification that history and exam could be reflected based on the patient's change since the last time they were seen. Well, I don't know how that's a change because that's how you should be documenting your history and exam. There's also a proposal that <clears throat> It would allow a practitioner to refer to information recorded by ancillary staff. The only thing I can imagine this is talking about is currently ancillary staff can document the review of systems in past family and social history, but we know we've had our hands popped about them documenting HPI. So maybe they're looking at re eliminating that factor in the fact that it isn't going to matter what we document anymore. That's not all. There's a couple of other changes I want to try to get through real quick. Payment adjustments for ENMs performed on the same date with the same with a procedure. Um, will this mean a change in the 25 modifier, or are we talking about when ENM services are above and beyond the decision making? Is there going to be a multiple payment adjustment applied? Um, there's a good proposal that home visits, you won't have to support them for medical necessity above and beyond an office visit. Another good proposed change is that we'll be able to do multiple E&M encounters 
in the same group, even the same specialty. And for our provider-based facilities, this could be a lot of help within those entities. There's a very brief mention about teaching physician documentation being relaxed someone in order to decrease the need for duplicative documentation. So hopefully that'll come about as well. I'll wrap up by adding this. CMS states within the proposal that they are requesting public opinion as to the implementation timeframe, as well as everything they've proposed. I really encourage you to reach out voice your opinion. You have to understand if we go to a single payment system for ENM, you're going to get paid the same for a complex diabetic patient as you are for a strep throat patient. And I think when we look at the long-term parameters and we think of CBRs that we receive from Medicare and our ZPIC audits, if we have a flat rate What's the curtailing factor? Who's monitoring? What's going on? So I think there's a lot left here to be worked out and figured out. Um, but for now, that's where we're at. Keep an eye on the ground to see where this proposal goes next. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Erica. Shannon, I was looking at it myself, and I think it's a little crazy. Thank you, Shannon. That was Shannon DeConda. Shannon is the founder of the National Alliance of Medical Auditing Specialists, known as NAMIS. Chuck. Thanks, uh, Erica. And Shannon, thank you very much for that excellent report. And now's the time for our regulatory segment here on Talk 10 Tuesday called Reg Watch, and it features healthcare industry expert Stanley Knox. And good morning, Stanley. Welcome to the broadcast. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning to our guests and listeners. You know, the fee schedule rule that we just talked about is one of the many payment system rules that CMS issues every year. There are also rules for the inpatient prospective payment system, outpatient uh, prospective payment systems, for skilled nursing facilities, for home health payments, and DME. Now, this year, as each of these proposed rules has been published, um, we are seeing a common theme for every type of provider. Each of the rules seems to contain three items that should catch our attention. One, interoperability requirements. Two, significant reductions in paperwork and three, reduced and or improved quality measures. CMS has changed the electronic health record requirements for hospitals and physicians to focus on achieving interoperability, both with other electronic health record systems and with providing data directly to patients. This is building on CMS's efforts that they've already started through their Blue Button 2 initiative to assure that not only claims data, but clinical data is available through APIs and other tools, enabling both patients and providers to have access to the widest possible data for treatment purposes. In addition to the payment and policy proposals, CMS is releasing a request for information to obtain feedback on some positive solutions to better achieve interoperability or the sharing of healthcare data between providers. In the Inpatient prospective payment system proposed rule, CMS is requesting stakeholder feedback um, on the possibility of revising their conditions of participation related to interoperability as a way to increase electronic sharing of data by hospitals. CMS is also focusing on providing paperwork reductions for a variety of providers. Uh, we just heard about some of the reductions in physician documentation for E&M and other services that were proposed. And another example is part of the skilled nursing facility rule. The agency is proposing a patient-driven patient model, which is a new system for SNF payment that ties payments to the patient's condition and care needs. 
rather than simply the number of services provided. This new system will simplify the complicated paperwork requirements for performing patient assessments uh, by significantly reducing the reporting burden. And CMS estimates this will save these skilled nursing facilities approximately $2 billion over 10 years. A similar payment model is also being proposed for home health. Now, CMS has also reviewed many of the quality measures that they have been requiring for providers, and they're moving to eliminate many process measures and focus on measures that are better linked to successful outcomes. For example, in the hospital rules, CMS removed the hospital survey on patient safety culture and the safe surgery checklist used due to cost and outcome concerns. Uh, they are saying that uh, the cost does not uh, show um, uh, better than, the, um, than the, the savings, and the, some of these measures are not necessarily tied to outcomes. For home health, CMS is proposing eliminating seven quality measures in the home health quality reporting system by 2022. Now, these proposals bring significant changes to the reporting quality and EHR requirements for all provider types. Our listeners should be looking at the proposed rules and determining how they may be effective. And uh, as was mentioned before, if you can, send your comments into CMS on your agreement or disagreement with these rules. As well, we need to look at the final rules when they are published so we know exactly what CMS will be implementing in 2019. Erica, back to you. Thank you, Stanley. That was Stanley Nockamson. Stanley is the founder of Nockamson Advisors, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, very much. And, Stanley, thanks for an excellent segment this morning. We really appreciate your taking a look at the uh, rules and explaining even with greater detail what they mean and how they're going to impact all of us. Our lead story this morning is one that's sure to spark some controversy. Are HIM coding professionals qualified to query for clinical validation? Well, our special guest, Deborah Beisel, Denton believes that they are, and she's here to explain why. Good morning, Deb. Welcome to Talk 10 Tuesday. Good morning, Chuck, and hello out there to everyone listening. Thanks for allowing me the time to answer this important question, which is, are well-trained, clinically competent, seasoned HIM coding professionals qualified to query for clinical validity? Well, the answer is an emphatic yes. Of course, those who are credentialed with years of proven competency, education, and training are qualified to write queries. HIM coding professionals have been doing it for decades. We certainly understand that to make a blanket statement that all HIM coding professionals are the same. With the same skill sets, it's just wrong. But the reason why there is this new contention is that some are saying HIM coding professionals aren't qualified to even be a CDI specialist. They are saying that only RNs, MDs, or other licensed healthcare providers are the only ones qualified to be a CDI specialist or to write queries for clinical validity. This is absurd. HIM coding professionals, especially those with dual credentials with a CCDS or a CDIP, are even more qualified, in my opinion, to be a CDI specialist because they have the clinical, the coding, and the revenue cycle experience behind them. The growing misconception being spread out there in the industry is that HIM coding professionals aren't clinically trained enough to understand clinical concepts or that it is not within their scope of skill sets to review charts and ask about clinical validation. 
This is being taken way out of context from CMS's RAC scope of work in 2013. It was meant for the RAC contractors, not for the hospitals. RAC contractors are required to employ a team, including coding professionals, nurses, therapists, and an MD to oversee the team for both DRG and clinical validation reviews. Even CMS understands the importance of a blended model. There should be no exclusive group of people saying they are the only ones qualified to do the job of a CDI specialist. What has been happening in the CDI industry is that HIM coding professionals who have been in the active role of a CDI for years are now losing their jobs, being demoted, or being locked out of jobs that they've been well qualified to do for years. Well, why is this? How has this happened? It's because there are large consulting firms who are propagating this idea. And now some hospitals are even writing job descriptions that require an RN or other medically licensed candidates, which blocks out the experienced HIM coding professionals, even with the CDI credential. If the trend is going to continue to require an RN, then a HEMA's credentialing of the CDIP without an RN license would be as ridiculous as giving a license to open a new movie rental store. Well, this is just wrong, and it's why I feel so compelled to speak up. I'd like to inform those who aren't aware of the course requirements for getting the HIM bachelor's degree, associates, or CCS. They are the same clinical courses in medical terminology, anatomy and physiology, disease processes, pathophysiology, and pharmacology that RNs take. Coding professionals have stayed up to date by continuous learning and ongoing CE requirements. We don't have a license to start IVs or give out meds, but for decades we have read and understood medical records and clinical documentation. We understand the clinical concepts and contents of medical health records enough to easily understand and interpret clinical indicators and to know when to query to ensure high-quality documentation and to ensure that we get the correct DRG, SOI, ROM, or query if the documentation is unclear, conflicting, or inconsistent. Well, let me wrap up by saying even all the four co cooperating parties, CMS, National Centers for Health Statistics, AHIMA, and the AMA recognize in the official coding and reporting guidelines the importance of a joint effort between the healthcare provider and the coding professional. They all agree it is essential to achieve complete and accurate documentation, code assignment, and reporting of diagnosis and procedures. Well, this is the ultimate goal for both CDI and coding professionals. Thanks, Deb. That was Deborah Beisel Denton. Deb works at Maricopa Integrated Health System in Arizona as the HIM system coding educator. Thanks, Erica. And Deb, thanks very much for your insightful comments. You can read Deb's excellent article on this very subject in today's ICD-10 Monitor Read News. We've posted to our website at icd10monitor.com. Returning once again is Dr. Erica Reamer with her very popular talkback segment. Erica, what's on your mind today? Chuck, first I'm going to give you my two cents about HIM professionals querying for cl clinical validity. I gave a session on clinical validity with Kelly Scarepa at the Actus National Conference in May, after which I was contacted by Deb, who was concerned that I gave the message that only nurses could do clinical validation. 
That is not my position. I believe anyone who has enough clinical understanding is capable of doing clinical validation. I do think it is easier to pick up clinical indicators which might potentially represent a diagnosis and query about it than to see a diagnosis documented by a medical professional, recognize a disconnect with the clinical indicators, and question their diagnosis. The RACs mandate a clinician in their statement of work for them. I think institutions must make their own decision as to who has the qualifications and the ability to do competent clinical validation. But clinical validation is a CDI function, not a coding function. Any competent CDI should be able to do it. Some of the best CDSs I know come from the coding side. I would never suggest that they couldn't do it just as well as an RN. I think that you can be a coder, you can be a CDIS, you can be an RN, or you can be an HIM professional. Now, what I really wanted to talk about today was the coding clinic update. When I was reading the one for quarter two, I spent some time chewing on the discussion on pages six and seven regarding the WITH guideline regarding um, diabetes. As a doctor who understands enough about coding to be dangerous, but not enough to be a coder, I didn't initially understand the difference the coding clinic made between arthropathy, not elsewhere classified, or neck, and peripheral vascular disease, and I think I've sorted it out. There are certain conditions which are extremely likely to have been caused by the diabetes, certain conditions which may not be, strictly speaking, pathognomonic, which basically means invariably linked and diagnostic of, but may be overwhelmingly likely to be found in a diabetic associated with the diabetes. One of the best examples is Charcot joint. This is a condition of destructive hypertrophic arthropathy, which is most commonly found in diabetes, and underlying sensory neuropathy is nearly universal. The poor circulation associated with diabetes is a compounding or contributory factor. The foot is the most common site. Historically, the encoder went to Charcot joint due to syphilis if the provider didn't specify diabetic or due to diabetes. I used to use this as a fun example, cautioning providers to give linkage until a good doctor friend of mine pointed out that it wasn't compliant to code a condition which wasn't supported in the documentation, as she said, how can you code syphilis if I never said it? With the advent of the WITH guideline, a provider who lists number one, type two diabetes, and number two, Charcot joint, right tarsometatarsal, for instance, gets the code E11.610, type 2 diabetes mellitus with diabetic neuropathic arthropathy. Arthritis is a type of arthropathy defined by Miriam Webster as a disease of joints. However, there is not an association between all arthritis and diabetes. Rheumatoid arthritis and osteoarthritis are not due to diabetes. However, long-term hyperglycemia can cause joint damage. This is called diabetic arthropathy, which I would characterize as diabetes with arthropathy not classified elsewhere. The two types of arthropathies associated with diabetes are therefore diabetic arthropathy and diabetic neuropathic arthropathy. Arthritis is classified elsewhere. So why is diabetic peripheral angiopathy different? The association with small vessel disease and diabetes is much stronger. If a patient has diabetes and peripheral vascular disease, clinically, one would assume a linkage, 
unless it was specifically linked to something else, like, for example, hyperhomocysteinemia. If the association is so strong that any clinician would assume a linkage unless explicitly stated otherwise, the word diabetic is implied. Hyperglycemia would be presumed to be due to diabetes, unless it wasn't, like from steroids. A cataract specified as being traumatic would circumvent designation as a diabetic cataract. My personal opinion is that it is better for the provider to be liberal with linkage and tell the coder he believes a condition is a diabetic complication than to expect coders to draw conclusions about etiology which might not be factual. If the code title has with in it and the condition almost invariably is associated with being a diabetic, then you are permitted to make the assumption. If you're not sure, you may need to query and risk the provider's scorn. You are not a clinician, and you're not a mind reader. Back to you, Chuck. Wow, thanks very much, Dr. Reamer. That was uh, Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, thanks again for that excellent comment. We've asked our panelists to stick around for a roundtable discussion of today's talk and Tuesday. We only have a couple of minutes. Uh, Erica, a real quick question. This is from Leah. Can you see what she's asking you? I can, and I'm sorry. It must be my New York accent. It's with, W-I-T-H, with. When, they, when the title has with in it, we are allowed to make the assumption. If you list the two linked conditions, we're allowed to do assumptive coding. Very good. Thanks, uh, Dr. Reamer. And uh, thank you all for being with us. This is going to be uh, a wrap for this edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. I want to thank you very much for being with us, and I want to thank our guests today, Shannon DeConnor, Dennis Jones, Stanley Knox, and Stanley, thanks very much for your insight into the 2019 Medicare position B schedule. We appreciate that very much. And a special thanks to Deborah Beisel-Dent and, of course, Dr. Eric Reamer. Hope you're going to be joining us next Tuesday for another edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck speaking on behalf of Dr. Eric Reamer and everyone here at Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Have a great week, everyone. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.